Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 16, looking at verses 5 through 15. John chapter 16, looking at verses uh, 5 through uh, 15 this morning is our main text. We're continuing in our expositional study of the Gospel of John for one more week as we head into Advent season, which technically begins today. Uh, but um, next week, as we begin that Advent series, we're going to be looking uh, at a series in Isaiah, looking at the Messianic prophecies that are found there in Isaiah 7, 9, 11, and then uh, the day after Christmas, Isaiah into 52, into, uh, into 53. So be preparing for that. But again, for today, we'll be in John 16, continuing to study Jesus's farewell to his disciples and seeing how this has promises not only for them, but for us as well, especially considering or concerning the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so you'll see that entitled there on the back of your worship folder, or if you got the email uh, tuning in through the live stream, the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So if you're able to, would you please stand as I read aloud? I'm actually going to back us up into John 15 for our New Testament reading this morning. John 15 and verse 26. So just before where we'll be this morning, all the way down to John 16 and verse 15 will be our New Testament reading. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You follow along as I read aloud. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, But when the Helper, that's another name for the Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said to you, He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. You may be seated. That is the Word of God of the New Testament reading this morning may it be a blessing to you as you've heard it read aloud both in the Old and New Testament. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we do indeed thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that without your word, we would know of your existence through nature, through what you have created. But Lord, we would be 
lost and we would suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And yet, Lord, you have revealed yourself, especially in your word, which uh, in the original autographs is inspired by your Holy Spirit, who also indwells every believer in this congregation this morning. So we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would enable us and illuminate us to understand these things, and not just for the sake of knowledge that might puff up, but, Lord, for the application of these truths to our lives and as we seek to encourage one another and to proclaim the gospel uh, Lord, we, we need you, and I need you, and I pray that you would get me out of the way. Lord, continue to humble me through this text this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the paradoxes that is oftentimes set up in entertainment is the idea of good news and bad news. It usually goes something like this in a movie or TV show. Someone says, I've got good news and I've got Bad news, which do you want to hear first? Instinct, or perhaps experience, tells us we usually want to hear the bad news because we're hoping that the good news will offset the bad. Is that your experience? I I think typically it is. For instance, the bad news is you owe the IRS $100,000. The good news is your very rich and estranged uncle just died and left you a million dollars. So... The IRS is going to come after some of that, by the way, too, but um, yet that good news would offset the bad news, would it not? Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, life is not this way. Typically, when bad news is delivered, there is just bad news, and it is not accompanied by some pseudo-miraculous good news. And thankfully, many times, When there is good news, it is typically only good news, and it is not accompanied by bad. Yet sometimes, whether something is good news or bad news is perspectival. It has to do with your perspective. Where do you stand in relation to that news? In Jesus' words to his men in this passage, which we are studying today, it is possible, depending on one's spiritual state, to see what Jesus says as either good news or bad news. And for some, perhaps even some sitting here in this very sanctuary this morning, the bad news from their perspective is possibly good if by God's grace they are spiritually transformed by the ministry of the Spirit that Jesus describes here in order to see that they need to do something with that bad news and to trust in the good news. Here's the main point this morning. It's written for you on the back of that worship folder. As I mentioned earlier, if you received the email and you're checking in through the live stream, the Spirit's coming is the next phase of God's plan after Jesus' earthly ministry for His glory and the church. And it is a means of ministry to His followers in the world. That's a long main point. We usually don't go that long. But I want to capture this morning the idea behind this text, which is this. Jesus summarizes it in this way. If I don't go away, the Spirit will not be sent. And you want the Spirit to come. And we'll see the reasons why he gives this morning in three aspects of the Spirit's ministry that Jesus declares to his men. And that's the three points this morning, the three aspects of the Spirit's ministry that Jesus declares 
to his men. The Spirit's coming is the next phase of God's plan after Jesus' earthly ministry. And the Spirit's coming is for his glory and for the church. And it's a means of ministry to his followers and to the world, which we will unpack this morning. Number one, the first aspect is this. The Spirit's ministry is an advantage for Jesus' followers. The Spirit's ministry is an advantage for Jesus' followers. As Jesus continues this farewell address to his men, and as he has spoken of the helper coming to them, he now elaborates on the ministry of the Spirit to them and also to the world. The first is that though they are sad that Jesus is leaving, there is an advantage to the Spirit coming in Jesus' absence, as we see in verses 5 through 7. Let's look at it again. But now, he says, I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. As Jesus speaks, he comments now on the disciples not asking where he is going, rather than asking their hearts are filled with sorrow. It's not, though, as if they had not asked him previously where he was going, but now the intensity of what Jesus has said, rather than repeating that question, I mean, essentially before when they asked, he says, I'm going to the cross. This has more to do with his ascension uh, to the right hand of the Father after he has completed his mission as the incarnated eternal Son. And yet the intensity has now grown uh, to the point where their hearts are not wondering where he is going, but he really means it. He is going away and their hearts are simply filled with sorrow. Uh, it is as Christosom says, they are driven to despondency here. This is, however, an expected response. As I mentioned last week, they have been with Jesus in his earthly ministry for three and a half years. They have come to believe that he is the eternal Son of God and that he is the long promised seed from Genesis 3, the seed of Abraham, the Messiah. They Love him, and they do not want him to go. Even in what Jesus says leading up to where we started in verse 5, there's a hint of what he is promising at the end of verse 4. Look at what he says. uh, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. At the end there of verse 4, Jesus says that he has not said these things. But we know from Matthew's gospel that he did tell them from the beginning that they would be hated and thrown out of the synagogues. That's what he has just told them previously that we looked at last week. The difference here is he is, uh, and the reason it's, it is different than what he said from the beginning is now he is wrapping this in their woes, yet in the promise of the coming spirit, which he did not do at the beginning because why? He is with them. There's this aspect of presence here that Jesus is elaborating on. Uh, When we think about this from the perspective of the Garden of Eden, we know that Adam and Eve were 
uh, or we, better yet, better to say God is with Adam and Eve. He is present with them in the garden. The language that is used there uh, in the Hebrew is that he walks with them in the cool of the day. He, he is with them. He is present with them. But what happens when the fall occurs? They, they are cast away from God's presence and his blessings. And so the recapitulation of that is through Christ, ultimately. Um, we're going to celebrate this in the coming weeks, are we not? Emmanuel, what? God with us. The presence of God in enfleshed humanity, the incarnation. By the way, side note, footnote for you as we enter into Advent season, uh, go get um, On the Incarnation by Athanasius, an early church father, and read that be so such a blessing to you as we enter into the advent season and reading about the incarnation and yet he being present with them is talking about going away how can this be an advantage that you are going away we have come to understand that you are the eternal son of god emmanuel god with us and yet you are leaving And sorrow has struck deep in their heart. It is, however, to their advantage that he goes away in order that the Holy Spirit would now come and fulfill his ministry upon the earth. Interesting thought, is it not? Christ will send him, the Holy Spirit, to them, as it says In verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. Again, we think of the context in which this uh, sending occurs and understand why this ministry of the Holy Spirit is so vital. Jesus comes and puts on humanity, which is limited. His humanity is limited. Had Jesus lived on and not died on the cross, not saying he wouldn't have died on the cross, that's the plan from the beginning, he would have died naturally because he is and was uh, was and is truly man. And yet truly God, though now he is the glorified God-man. Remember, there were times where Jesus had to escape death. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Um, Had they had their way, they would have killed him. But it wasn't the plan that he would die in any other way than on the cross. But his humanity is limiting. However, it was necessary that Christ come and put on humanity to be the substitute for humanity that was needed for our salvation. This is his mission, his, the outworking of his uh, mission in space and time in concert with his eternal relation to the Father. He is the sent one in the sense of humanity's hope, the second Adam, and therefore his ministry in his incarnation and first coming is limited to the eternal plan of the triune God. Now that sounds weird to say limited to the eternal plan of the triune God. We're talking about limited and eternal. But, but there comes a, a point in which the mission is accomplished and he ascends. 
We don't often focus on the ascension very much in, in our kinds of churches, but we should focus on the ascension because Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and that tells us, among many other things, that he is coming again. When we think about celebrating Advent, we not only think about his first Advent, we think about his second Advent. He is coming again. And so with his ascension and his glorification to the right hand of the Father in his humanity, we know that there sits in that realm of God's dwelling a God-man, the eternal Son of God who put on humanity, who died in the place of sinners, who is coming again. But, but what happens at the end of that earthly mission The scope of the Spirit's ministry is different. He does not put on humanity, but comes through the sending of the Father and the Son to indwell those who trust in Christ so that the commission to go make disciples throughout the world can be fulfilled. This, then, is the Holy Spirit's ministry in concert with His eternal relation to the Father and the Son. He is eternally breathed out by the Father. That's what that word procession means that Jesus uses earlier. He is eternally breathed out by the Father and the Son. And so, He does not take on flesh, but is received by believers and indwells those who are united to Christ. So we think about The mission of Jesus being accomplished, which obviously, as he's saying this, has not occurred yet, but it is coming. And we then think about the the mission of the Spirit and what he comes to do. Augustine uh, explains it uh, as this. It is as if Jesus had said, It is expedient for you that this form of a servant be taken away from you, as the Word made flesh, indeed flesh I dwell among you. But I would not that ye should continue to love me carnally and content with such milk, desire to remain infants always. In other words, Christ in his humanity cannot accomplish what the disciples indwelled by the Holy Spirit can accomplish in the spread of the gospel, and this is according to God's plan. The absence of Jesus, though it brings sorrow to their heart, propels forward the eternal plan of God in regard to rescuing those um, who were his lost sheep that he will bring in through what means? Well, what does Jesus tell his disciples to do as he gets ready to ascend? He says, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. That's the way in which God has planned for this to be accomplished. So that's, that's God's plan. The Spirit would come in and dwell. And how is God's presence going to be with new covenant believers? They're, he's going to indwell them. Amen. And He is going to work through them, as we will see, to do this mission. And let's not forget Christ's words, that this is the way in which the presence of the Trinity is manifest in them. In the midst of the beginning uh, of the promise of the Spirit in John 14, Jesus declares in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. How does the Trinity make their home with us? By virtue of the Spirit's mission. He is sent out, and we talked about this last week a little bit, at Pentecost, and he indwells believers. And that is the new covenant promise. The Spirit comes and indwells and empowers believers. 
Again, Augustine summarizes with Christ's bodily departure, both the Father and the Son, as well as the Holy Spirit, were spiritually present with them. Notice the Spirit is called the Spirit of the Father, or the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Christ, other places in Scripture. The, the um, idea, the comfort, trying to think of a good word to put in here, uh, the reality of God's presence with us as Trinitarian, as the Trinity, is when the Spirit's indwelling. And this ministry of the Spirit cannot be accomplished without the Son is essentially what is spelled out in our next two points. For what the Spirit comes to do concerning the world. That's our first, after thinking about the need of the Spirit coming, the second point is the Spirit's ministry is one of convicting. What is His ministry now as Jesus is speaking of Him coming into the world and being sent by the Father and the Son? What is His ministry? The first we see of that is our second point. I know that's confusing, but it's the Spirit's ministry of convicting, verses 8 through 10. Jesus gives an overview of the Spirit's work in verse 8. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, sometimes you've heard it translated as literally missing the mark, falling short of God's glorious standard. Um, and, and that's a piece of it as well, not rising to the standard. In regard to God, perfection, and glory, we cannot attain that. It's impossible. This is where we think about that first use of the law. What does the law do? The law opens our eyes to the fact that we cannot be perfect and that we need to be perfect because God is holy and we are not. So therefore, we must have a perfect substitute to stand in our place, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin. The Spirit comes and convicts of sin. Paul writes in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory or His glorious standard. So the Spirit is going to come and convict according to sin. He's going to come and convict according to righteousness. One lexicon says this is the quality of being upright. So the opposite of not being upright is we define sin. So He's going to come and He's going to convict the world of sin, the Bad things we do, we might say in our Sunday school answer, those things which are in opposition to God, but he will convict concerning righteousness as well. The law has two sides to it. It shows us what we cannot do, but what we must do. We must be completely righteous. And dear ones, we cannot be completely righteous. Only one is completely righteous, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So so you can see the significance of the Spirit's ministry because when He convicts the world of sin and righteousness, the, the proclamation of the apostles and then down through the ages and to us is that Christ is the righteous one who can take away the sins of the world. Sin and righteousness and judgment. Judgment. Judgment can mean a couple of things. One thing is, of course, what we think of in regard to the idea that there is condemnation upon those who, are, who reject God, who reject Christ. That sort of a judgment, the, one, the, the judgment that in God's providence we 
prayed from our confession this morning, that Steve prayed in the pastoral prayer, that there is a day coming where God will judge. By the way, Jesus in his first advent comes to save. In his second advent, what does he do? Comes to judge. There is that kind of a judgment, but there's also this idea of discernment, judging between that which is right and wrong. The Spirit comes and convicts of sin and righteousness And the one to whom God gives that spiritual discernment through regeneration will know that they need the one who is righteous because they are not. But judgment is coming. So it can be in both senses that the the Spirit convicts in regard to judgment because there needs to be a discerning between what is right and wrong. But there is also... The coming judgment where God will discern those who are righteous and those who are sinners. Righteous not on their own account, but because of Christ. And this is what Jesus expands on here. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So if you, if you read after that in verse 9, he begins to expand on this. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The sinfulness of this idea of not believing in Christ is tied to the great sin of not believing in God, either through natural revelation or not believing in Christ as the one who reveals God specifically. Remember, uh, Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 1. He says that those who can see God's existence through what he has created um, are condemned if they reject God. They actually he says, actively suppress that truth by their sin. Both of those things will send a person to their eternal torment. Rejecting God through what they see in creation and rejecting Christ if they hear the gospel. They're already on their way to eternal judgment. Those realities will seal their fate, if I could use that term. Concerning righteousness, because Jesus says he goes to the Father and there will be none who can display the righteousness of God on earth in perfection as Jesus did. So those who are his will display it by the power of Christ through the indwelling of the Spirit. Remember, uh, Peter talks about this, you know. They're going to um, call, they're going to call you evildoers by the good that you do. Why? Because through your activity in pursuing God and righteousness, the Spirit through you is convicting the world of sin. Not your righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that has been given to you. This is what God is doing. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples when the Spirit comes. This is going to be his ministry. And notice it is in concert with um, how they submit to the Spirit. Lastly, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Well, thank goodness for that. Um, there is no question as to who wins. God wins. Uh, but um, the world w- would like to pretend that either there is no God, or if, if there is a God, there is no judgment. But the ruler of this world is judged, and there are only two positions in which to be in this world. Either 
under Christ where there is no condemnation or under Satan as your taskmaster and slave under which there is condemnation. Now, it is not as if Christ has not done these things in his earthly ministry that the Spirit will do in his coming, but we once again think of the geographical limitation of Jesus' earthly ministry. Remember, the turning point in his ministry is when the Gentiles come and inquire about him. Keep your finger in John 16. Turn over to John chapter 12. What has Jesus' ministry been? It has been to Israel. It has been to the specific people. John chapter 12 and verse 21. Sorry, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks or Gentiles. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish... To see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Speaking, of course, of his his own death. Again, Christism commenting on this passage says, what, what is the hour is come? He had said, go not into the way of the Gentiles to his disciples, thus cutting away all excuse of ignorance from the Jews and had restrained the disciples. When therefore the Jews continued disobedient and the others desired to come to him, that, that others being the Gentiles, now he says, it is time to proceed to my passion since all things are fulfilled. For if we were to continue to wait for those who are disobedient and not admit these who even desire to come, this would be unbefitting our tender care. Since then, he was about to allow the disciples to go to the Gentiles after the crucifixion and beheld them springing on before, he saith, it is time to proceed to the cross. For he would not allow them to go sooner that it might be for a testimony unto the Jews." Until that by their deeds the Jews rejected him, until they crucified him. He did not say, go and make disciples of all nations. What is the point? The point is is that Jesus' earthly ministry had a fulfillment. It had a fulfillment. However, now that his death is upon them, the glorifying of the Son of Man from his incarnate state as the eternal Son of God who had taken on flesh would be complete. And the task is now to turn to the world in evangelistic zeal. This is what Jesus is promising in the coming of the Spirit. I have fulfilled my task when I go to the cross, when I die in the place of sinners and, and, and am raised again. And when I ascend, I will send you out into the world. And it's now worldwide. Think about what we believe we know from church history about those whom Jesus sent out and his disciples. Thomas, we believe, went to India and brought the gospel to India. He was speared through his back as he was praying to the Lord God. This is time for the disciples to understand that the Spirit is coming to indwell them so that their, the ministry of Jesus might continue on throughout the world. 
It's to spread the gospel throughout the world. It is time to go to the rest of the world and proclaim this message. And it is the Spirit who will be with them as they do so. And what is the message? That there is sin, that people are sinners. That they reject the triune God, whether that takes on the form of rejecting God through natural revelation, Psalm 119, Psalm 14.1, or particularly rejecting the revealed Christ. The Spirit is the one who represents the Father and the Son to the world through Christ's followers, and to reject Him is to reject truth. And this is the ultimate sin. All, all their sins point to this. I am rejecting God. So all are sinners who are not righteous, the measure being the eternal Son of God whose righteousness should be proclaimed to the world, and judgment of those who are of their father the devil who is already condemned. That's Jesus' point. So, if you are here and not in Christ, the message for you is to recognize that you are a sinner. You fall short of God's glory, as do I. The only means by which you can be reconciled to a holy God is through His Holy Son, through Jesus Christ, who took on humanity, who died the death that we deserved, who lived the life that we could not live, who rose again three days later and has ascended. And He gives you His righteousness, and that's how you're able to be accepted by God. You are justified. You are made right standing. You are declared on the opposite, not guilty as my father-in-law who is with me today would say. This is the message to you from God and His Word with the ministry of the Spirit today of conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. If you do not know Christ, turn from your sin and trust in Him today. And to some... This is good news because you are being drawn by the Spirit today and this conviction will turn out for your salvation. And I pray that this is the outcome rather than just the bad news that you are condemned if you do not turn to Christ. But that is the outcome if you do not believe today. The Spirit's ministry, though, is not just conviction, but also one of guidance into truth as we see in our third point. Turn back over to John 16 and verse 12 if you're still in John 12. John 16 and verse 12. Looking at verses 12 through 15, the Spirit's ministry is one of guidance in, into truth. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now, Jesus says to His men. In verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus deals honestly here with his disciples. He, he, he has more to tell them, but in this moment, they cannot bear it. Why can they not bear it? It's a lot. <laughs> They're mere humans. Their hearts are sorrowful. Jesus has already said. They don't even ask Him where He goes because they're so despondent. But the statement also seems to be in line with the need of the Spirit and the promise of the Spirit. As John Calvin says, when he says that 
Were he to tell them anything more or what was loftier, they would not be able to bear it. His object is to encourage them by the hope of better progress, that they may not lose courage. For the grace which he was to bestow on them ought not to be estimated by their present feelings, since they were at so great a distance from heaven. In other words, they know he's going away. And they know to where he is going and what that means for his presence with them. In short, he bids them, this is still Calvin, be cheerful and courageous, whatever may be their present weakness, as if he had said, if what you have heard from me is not yet sufficient to confirm you, have patience for a little. For before long, having enjoyed the teaching of the Spirit, you will need nothing more. He will remove all the ignorance that now remains in you. In other words, your heart is grieved. Your heart is sorrowful. There's, there's more things I'd like to tell you, but you cannot bear it. But the Spirit, He's going to come and tell you. That's the point that Jesus means when He says the Spirit will help them bear these things. Look at verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit, we are to take this, will speak from the place of being co-equal in essence with the Father and the Son and now ministering to those who are in Christ. And when Jesus says He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears He will speak and that He will declare to you the things that are to come, He means that the Spirit does not speak on His authority alone, but the authority of the triune God because He is a, a, a person within the Godhead. Whatever he hears is accommodating language to help us think about the communication between the Godhead and the communication of that to us. Because we cannot think in eternal terms. It's an accommodating idea. Further, there is this intra-Trinitarian glorification that occurs as the members of the Trinity appropriate their eternal relations and the outworking of their mission within space and time. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The, the, what has, and we can't even really think about this in proper terms because we're limited in our thinking. But what has occurred in eternity, even saying that doesn't make sense, is now being worked out in time. The, the appropriateness of what is happening here when Jesus says that his ministry is fulfilled and now it's time, it's time for the Spirit's ministry is that this is what God has determined in and of Himself in the councils of eternity. And this must occur. And in this occurrence, is not just blessing for you and me who are in Christ uh, or, 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 or the promises of that, but it is the glorification of the triune God. This must occur because in it is The glory of God. Dear ones, that is the end of all things. That is the supremacy of all things. That God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, would be glorified. And this is simply the outworking in space and time of how that occurs. Through the Spirit's now coming ministry. And we then see this uh, expressed even further in verse 15. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said to you, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. We just see this inter-Trinitarian work that 
cannot be explained in our finite minds in eternity, but we can understand it as, as it is worked out in the mission of each person of the Trinity. Since this is true, we must not see these promises as for the apostles alone, there, though there would be particular ways in which this worked itself out in the apostolic ministry. Paul says that in Ephesians 2 and verse 20. says the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. So there, there were things that the Spirit did in them that he does not repeat once the, once the apostolic age has come to the end and the, the church is, is founded. That's a longer discussion for a different time. But does not the Spirit through the Word of God, which is a part of that foundation, continue to guide us into all truth? Paul says that the Spirit illuminates our minds. You might have heard that in a prayer every once in a while. The, 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 the Spirit illuminates our minds. We can expect that the Spirit will similarly remind us of truth and glorify the triune God through His indwelling ministry through His saints. Therefore, one practical application is, as we long for the return of Jesus, don't you just long to see Him face to face? Who is our down payment, as Paul says? It's the Spirit. The Spirit confesses to our spirit that we are the children of God. And we have confirmation through John's other writings that um, we are God's children. He has lavished His love on us, First John says. And what is our hope? Brethren, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we do know this. When we see Him, we shall what? Be like Him. That confirmation of the Spirit is, uh, is part and parcel of that. Believer, you have been regenerated by the Spirit. Your eyes and hearts illuminated by the Spirit. The task is that we should bear witness about God, as Jesus says previously in this passage. Not the one we studied this week, but last week. That we should bear witness about God and His grace as the Spirit bears witness through us in His ministry of conviction and comfort. That is our task. This is our call. This is what our lives are to be about. As we walk in this life, imitating Christ who has through His perfect life, death, and resurrection secured for us eternal life and given us His righteousness, we have God's love poured out into our hearts through the Spirit. And we are to call sinners to turn from their sin and to trust in Christ's finished work and also live life together in Christ, pointing each other to these truths and this hope. I need that. You need that. Amen. We need to be proclaiming the gospel, and we need to, as a part of making disciples, be living life together and pointing each other to these truths. We need that truth. How sometimes does the Spirit confirm that in us? Through our brothers and sisters. Through, through those that are, are growing, perhaps, ahead of us, who we can look to as an example, like Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We need those who are out in front of us and we need to be thinking about those who are looking to us. We're encouraging each other with these truths, these promises. 
Are you doing that, dear believer? Are you fellowshipping with the believers in this body and encouraging each other and pointing each other to these truths? Are you proclaiming the gospel to the lost, praying that God would give you that opportunity? That leads me to this. For those who are in our midst who do not know Christ, my call to you once again is that you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ's finished work today. I pray that the Spirit is doing what Jesus said He would do, convicting you concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that when you hear this bad news about sin and the good news about Jesus, that you would realize you need to turn from that sin and trust in Him. Well, as we prepare to close in prayer and a song, I just want to remind you that Pastor Steve will be up front here at the end of our song to speak with you or pray with you. If you would like to know what it means to come to faith in Christ, speak with him about that. If you just need prayer or encouragement, he'd be happy to do that with you. Just a reminder, next week is the Lord's table. just want to be preparing our hearts for that. Let me pray and then Pastor Steve will come and lead our song. Lord, for those of us who are in in you, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. And our only boasting is in Christ, in his cross, in his resurrection, in his finished work which the author of Hebrews says is signified by his sitting down at the right hand of the Father. No more work needs to be done. We rely fully upon the finished work of Christ. We thank you for that this morning, and we pray, Lord, that we would, by your Spirit's help, proclaim the gospel and live as you have called us to live with one another. And for those who do not know you, I pray that today might be the day that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Lord, that is your work. We pray for it. We pray for the conviction of the Spirit through the truth that is proclaimed today. We pray that you would regenerate hearts and give the gift of faith and repentance that people would come to know you. Lord, we pray for um, the rest of our time together this morning as we sing and as we go into our time of equipping in Sunday school. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.